You are listening to the podcast of Calvary Church in Irwin, Pennsylvania. For more information, you can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com. You can be seated. Thank you so much for being with us today. And You know, today is about honoring. Uh, it's also, I believe when we honor, we learn things about ourselves. And today we're going to have a conversation. And, you know, I believe that most of our lives uh, is shaped by conversations. Uh, moments in our life where things change for the good or bad oftentimes are the result of a conversation. In a few moments we're going to have a conversation with uh, Judah Samet, who is with us today, but kind of set the foundation for that. I want to just uh, frame it in to share a little bit real quick here. You know, if I, if I could make a confession with you, you know, one of my greatest outlets in life when things are difficult or I'm stressed or any of that is basketball. I love playing basketball. Do any of you like to work out? Some of you maybe. Uh, I love, throughout my entire life, basketball has been my, my thing. At the same time, one of the greatest realities of my aging body uh, is playing basketball. Uh, it, it really stinks getting older. And uh, I remember when I could drive to the hoop, my head fakes would work. All of that worked. I play basketball every Monday night with a group of guys, uh, mostly who are in their 20s. I'm not in my 20s, but in my head I am. But uh, my, my head fakes don't work anymore. They, 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 like Usually what happens is I kind of juke to the left, and they're already there. And then I'm, I pulled something, and I'm like limping my way down the court. Doesn't it stink to get old? I just wish, I wish I could go back in time to when things worked better. Maybe you've been there before. You know, your muscles, your joints, your brain, things don't quite work the way they used to, and we just wish we could rewind and go back to when things were working the way they're supposed to. Unfortunately, we don't have Marty McFly to take us back, do we? I wish we did. That would be awesome, but it's not, but we don't. And, and it's frustrating because we can't quite do what we once did. And the reality is, nothing is limitless. We, we, have, we have certain boundaries in our life. And, and this one idea has honestly sent more men into midlife crisis, has caused uh, incredibly talented, gifted people to, to oftentimes give up, because they, they come to this reality that we weren't created with limits, that, that we were created with limits. We, we have boundaries in our life. I, I hate that idea. I wish it weren't true, but it's the reality. It's truth. Because we've grown up, each and every one of us, we've grown up, we're grown, up being, grown up being told that we can do anything we put our minds to. If you put your mind to it, you can do it. And now that we're adults, is that really completely true? Not necessarily. For those that, that, that are followers of Jesus, we even hold on to scriptures like Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. And it says that we can do all things through Christ who gives, strengthens me. And we hold on to those verses and we say, man, I can do anything, right? But, but if you actually look in Philippians, Paul wasn't talking about that. He was talking about being happy, content in any and every situation. Not jumping off a roof and flying like a bird. We can't do that, okay? That's your disclaimer. Don't try that. Uh, that's, that's not what we were created to do. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning, the book of Genesis, we read uh, a few verses about the creation of the world. Here's, here's what it says in Genesis chapter a one, starting in verse 14. It says this. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. We see even from the creation of the world, 
not just everything that God created, but even man and women, that God created us with limits. In fact, here's what it says about uh, Adam and Eve in in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any. Can you say any? Any. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but, can you say but? If you have have kids, you understand the importance of that conjunction there. Like, you can do this, but, all right? Um, But, listen to this, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And, And limits are part of God's creation. They're really difficult for us to process. We hate having limits, but there's something important to understand about limits in our life, that we were all created with limits. This is this, that, that when something ends, another thing begins. Where, where the water ends, the land begins. Where, 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 where darkness ends, light begins. And, and here's a simple thought, simple idea that I want to kind of frame our conversation today with Judah uh, around that when we reach the end of ourselves, we can start to see the beginning of God. And in those moments when we reach the end of ourselves, when we hit that limit, that wall, that's when we start to see the beginning of God. And it's important for us to understand limits. And today, we are blessed to have with us uh, uh, a, a man who has given of his life and has seen some incredible things. Judah Samet, at the age of six, uh, him and his family were taken from their home in Hungary to a concentration camp where they uh, lived for 11 months. After being liberated from there, uh, they then moved uh, to Israel, where Judah served in the armed forces there uh, in Israel as a teacher. Uh, after that, moved to Canada and to America. And this past October, uh, he was a witness and survivor of the tragic Tree of Life shooting here in Pittsburgh. And we are so blessed to have you with us this morning. If you can put your hands together this morning for Mr. Judah Samet. Thank you so much for being with us today, Judah. May I just make a comment? So whatever you, yeah, go for it. You got I the just, microphone. I just want to tell you how much I enjoyed your services. Thank you so much. It really played on the strings of my heart. Mm. That means a lot. Thank you. Yeah. It is such an honor to have you with us today. And uh, I, I have to be honest, personally, I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. And uh, just to get to talk to you. And uh, you've lived an amazing life. Before we get into that, I just want to ask you this one, one surface question. What was it like this past year to have the entire uh, assembly gather for the State of the Union address, stop and sing happy birthday to you? Happy. <laughs> what was that like? What? You know, it, it was very unusual to me because I grew up in Israel. In Israel, we don't celebrate birthdays. The only birthday we celebrate is bar mitzvah yeah. or bat mitzvah. Yes. 13, months for, 13 years for a boy, 12 years for a girl. The reason girls develop faster yeah. than boys. <laughs> 
Was and it was it pretty incredible that it, to, to have Danny, the whole? Was it pretty incredible to have the whole place stop? I mean, I've never seen that happen in State of the Union to sing Happy Birthday to you, and you even said thank you. Well, you know, on the way back from the first of all, the idea I was sitting right behind Melania. Yeah. Ivanka was behind me. Yeah. And they, uh, we were in that section that's preserved. Yes. For the first lady. And there were six of us there. There were two survivors, two liberators, Americans. And then there were the two little kids. Anybody who watched? The girl, she was about 10 years old. She had brain cancer. And she collected all the funds herself to pay for the surgery. And the little boy's name was Trump. And he gets bullied all the time. <laughs> I guarantee you, he doesn't get bullied anymore. Yeah. You got to meet President Trump yeah. and the Vice President, uh, Vice President Pence. We have a quick yeah. picture. Well, actually, uh, the four of us were invited in today. Yeah. Oval Office, one at a time. And they, I was the last one. And they, as they came in through the left side of the president, they would go by, shook their hands, and there were a couple of women taking pictures. When I came in, he grabbed me and put me on his right side. He knew that I'm a Republican. <laughs> conservative, conservative, except in women matters. I think women are more than equal to us. And you'll hear it when I talk about my mother. Because yeah. my mother saved hundreds and hundreds of people. She yeah. spoke fluent German. She was the interpreter. Amazing. Yeah. Let's go back yeah. some 76 years. You and your family are in Hungary. You were taken to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. What, what do you remember from that time? I, I think of this because I'm a five-year-old. And you would have been about that age. Well, I was six years and two months old. And I knew that I have a very good memory. But not till the end of June this year, this fellow who comes to the synagogue every morning, Dr. Ed Friedman, asked me if I have total recall. I said, come on, total recall? I read a book and I can repeat it by heart immediately? No, but I have very good memory. You know, I'm, I'm in a jewelry business. If I sold somebody a diamond 30, 40 years ago, when I see him, I call him by his first name. Many times ago like that. So uh, he came back a couple of weeks later and he told me, you have photographic memory. With this, I agree. I was six years and two months old. I don't remember everything, but I remember what's important. And nobody ever, and I've been to hundreds of schools and churches, ever questioned the veracity of my story. It has been tested. And they... Um, First of all, you know, they picked us up, and we were three months, actually, in Hungary waiting for trains. There was a big problem with trains for Germany. They needed train, the military needed trains to move soldiers' ammunition to the front. The SS needed trains to move the Jews to the death factories in Poland. So they were always fighting. Uh, eventually, they convinced Hitler that it's important to have the military priority. And that was a part of what saved us. And the, uh, after three months, trains came. The first train, I had an aunt there with seven children, but the oldest one was already taken to a labor camp with his father. 
And she started to move towards the train, and my mother begged her, don't go. But the kids were hungry. You know, all they ate is one slice of bread, rock hard black bread, and a cup of soup for 24 hours. How do you do it with children? You gotta feed them six times a day. You gotta give them a cookie, you gotta give them that. So she got on the train, unfortunately, we never saw them again. And, they, uh, and then we got on the train, but before we got on the train, my mother saw that they were putting two buckets, one with water, those buckets that farmers used to milk their cows in, two and a half, three gallons maybe, and the other one was for toilet. And they, my mother, who was the interpreter, she spoke fluent, very high in German, stood right next to the commandant, next to her stood an SS sergeant, the killers, and my mother started to say that this little bucket of water is not gonna be enough. One third of the people here are sick already because they, they are hungry, and they catch all kinds of illnesses. So the Gestapo, the sergeant, took us his pistol and put it to my mother's head because there was a direct order by Hitler. If a Jew opens his mouth right away, no questions. The only way a Jew talks if he's asked a question. And my mother kept telling him, what will the people along the way say? What happened to the Germans? The Germans were the flower of the Western world. They were number one in everything. 1933, they won half of all the Nobel Prizes. There were a couple of Jews amongst them. Can you name one Jew? It's not a test. Did somebody say something? Albert Einstein. They want to give him another one the following year for chemistry. And he said, no, that's enough. He couldn't care less about money. He sent all his money to his strange wife because she was raising his child. And they, the way my mother talked, she never raised her voice. She always talked very quietly, but very intense, very focused. And she spoke a beautiful German, so the commandant didn't even turn around. He just told the Gestapo, you idiot, you, you dumbkopf. Can't you see if you kill her, we have nobody to talk to. So that was a miracle. Now, as far as my mother was concerned, some people might say, well, she was suicidal. No, she was not suicidal. She was, she was, her strategy was that if we arrive in Auschwitz, maybe five, six hours from now, we'll be dead within 50 minutes already. It took 50 minutes before you came out the smokestack. So she took a chance, and she did twice. She had the right instincts, so we were saved. Now, what happened to the other bucket, <coughs> the toilet bucket? When they shoved 100, almost 90 to 100 people in each car, standing room only, very few people could get to it. And by then our clothes was ripped and so forth, especially women. But modesty has disappeared. It didn't exist anymore. Neither did the energy. So nobody cared at all about that. T tell us a little bit more. We have a picture of your mother. Pardon me? We have a picture of your mother on the screen. Tell us a little bit more about your mother. Oh, let me see. You can see over there. Can you see I it? Can't, I can't have enough of seeing her. 
she was about 16, 17 here. She was a very pretty woman. She had three qualities. First, she was very, very pretty. I don't say she was a looking glass or the audience. <laughs> okay. She was only 4'10", but she was very pretty. She was, you know, when you say smart, out of the box, it doesn't touch my mother. She was brilliant, out of the box. She was an Orthodox Jewish girl who could speak German because she convinced her father that she wants an education. And then she was courageous to speak to the commandant, knowing that you might get killed. That was courage. By the way, the only thing I inherited from my mother is fearlessness. And it's not always good. Sometimes I take too many chances. But I'm still here. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna be 82 in Fev on February the 5th. Thank you. Now, usually an 82 man doesn't walk like I do, but when you are 20 in Israel, in the military, and you jump from airplanes, by the time you are 70, you don't have knees, or you need shots all the time. So uh, I'm OK otherwise. I say from the pupic <laughs> up, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about those 11 months. The, the 11 months you guys were in, the, uh, in Bergen-Belsen. The, the 11 months you were in the Bergen-Belsen, what were Can some it, of the most painful things you experienced there? Well, at my age, I didn't worry too much. Of course, we didn't have enough food, obviously. One slice of bread and that. But I always knew that my mother had my back. In fact, I'm the only one who was always outside the other two, my two brothers and one sister, were always inside. They didn't go out. But I couldn't be kept inside, so I went out. And I found an, a, a friend my age, same height, and we were foraging for food all the time. We learned that if you go to the officer's mess hall, which was like a five-star restaurant, because they had our money, they took all our money, all our jewelry, everything. So uh, we, f we followed them. They always came out of the restaurant with a wing, with a piece of pork, some kind of food, and they dropped it when they finished. Sometimes there was something on it, but most of the time there was nothing on it, but the taste remained in our mouth. It's like, you know, when you make soup, you take a teaspoon and check to make sure that it's ready. It fills your mouth, the taste. But the main thing was, the camp was inundated with lice. I was unbelievable. I saw a picture of a person, we cannot tell, man or woman, completely covered with lice. And lice has wings. And my mother talked us into eating the lice. She never ordered us to do anything. She always philosophized. She says, lice are blood suckers. Blood is protein. And if you eat the lice, that's going to help you to stay alive. Another thing she did, that one slice of bread that we got per person, many people were so hungry that they ate the whole thing and dropped dead because they didn't have stomach left. The stomach shrunk to nothing. Dysentery was a big, big problem in the camps. But the Germans appointed the Jewish committee. And the Jewish committee's job was called the a Judenrat. Uh, the, their job was to keep the camp in good order, clean, and God knows you had to clean it all the time. 
also pick up the dead because people were dropping and dying. If you were there already two, three months and you knew that the Germans are going to kill you eventually, you lose hope. If you don't have hope, you have no reason to stay alive and suffer another day. So they just dropped. The camp was always loaded with bodies. And they, my friend and I, we also had an experience that was a little jarring. You know, one of the guards in the tower was a Hungarian, started to talk to us Hungarian. We were born, I was born in Debrecen, Hungary, second largest city in Hungary. And by the way, we were, we had two factories, two knitting factories. And the war required a lot of sweaters, pullovers, hoodies, socks, and everything. So, uh, but uh, the profits didn't come to us. So anyhow, but that was over. So anyhow, this guard started to talk to us. We thought, oh, maybe we have a friend. By then I was seven years old. You know, who knows, somebody talks to you, you must be a friend. When we came a little closer, he started shooting between our legs. Just imagine, you are seven years old. And the guy is shooting. Why didn't he kill us? I don't know, maybe it was a little bit closer. Maybe another six months, the war would end. And they knew that they're gonna be in trouble after the war. What, what, during your time there, did you ever see any glimpses of hope? Like little things that gave you a reason to keep going? You mentioned hope. A lot of people lost hope. What, what caused you to keep hope? As I said, my mother. My mother saved on the trains. By the way, I was on three death trains. The first one to Auschwitz, where the Czech partisans blew up the railway. So they had to take us back. They couldn't take us to Hungary. Hungary didn't want us. Hungary was always one of the most anti-Semitic countries in Europe. And they, the second one was to Bergen-Belsen. We were supposed to die there. And the third one, they didn't force us on the train. Whoever wanted to go, my mother packed us up on the train. And I asked her years later, I used to bring her here every year, every other year for two, three months. And years I, I didn't bring her, I, used to, I would go to Jerusalem to see her. And I asked her, you knew it's a death train. Why did you put us on the train? And she said, I had to make a choice between two possibilities. We stay in Bergen-Belsen, we'll be dead in two days because the infrastructure, no water, no food. How long can you stay after 11 months of starvation, actually 13 months of deep starvation, because the three months in Hungary waiting for the train, you gotta compound it with the time in Bergen-Belsen. And the second choice was, we don't know, this train could be a dead train, but maybe this miracle that happened to us on the first one, maybe it's gonna happen again. And surely enough, it happened. We were saved by the Americans. So is that how you made it out of Bergen-Belsen? How, yeah. how did you make it out? Well, we were on the train for several, I thought for several weeks. They were looking for a place where they could kill us. And uh, by the way, on that last trip, you know, that train would stop every two days and uh, take the dead off and burn them or something like that. I had this old man right next to me who was my pillow and he was also, he stopped the cold air from biting me. Because you know, these were not M-truck cars. These were cattle cars. 
where the panels don't always touch each other. So there's enough room for the wind. The ice cold wind, maybe 10, 15 degrees. But you know, when you are that hungry, you don't care about the cold so much. Honest to goodness. No, I'll tell you in a minute. So they took that old man, and I was very upset because now I was open to the wind. That didn't mean anything to me. Even today, I go to a funeral home and open casket has no effect on me because I have seen, by the age of seven, I've seen so much death. There were between 80, 800, <coughs> excuse me, and 1,200 dead every day in Bergen-Belsen. They packed them by the gate coming in to the camp, and they, uh, they were cleared. Next morning, they woke you up at 3 o'clock to inspect, to make sure, see who is still alive, you know. And they, so that didn't mean anything to me. T tell me about this. What, what was it like the, the moment you guys were liberated? Tell me about that, that experience. Well, you know, we were on the train going around and around and around, and we stopped near Farsleben. It's a city in Germany, in the forest. And they, uh, we were waiting. It was very quiet. We thought maybe we reached the target where they're going to finish us off. We were in a forest, and all of a sudden we hear this big noise. Sounded even it turned out to be a tank. Okay, so everybody got scared. We thought, oh, here it comes. The first thing we noticed is when the tank came up from the forest, the turret was not aimed at the train. And then it opened, and the soldier jumped out. And we noticed that his uniform was different than the Nazis. So my father, my father was a huge scholar. My mother taught him everything about business. She actually was the entrepreneur of the family. But she was a very fast learner. But he also learned English, because he knew what happened in Poland. Poland jury, they lost almost 3 million Jews died in Poland. And he knew if the Germans come to Hungary, it's going to happen. And they came to Hungary. So he started to yell, Americans. By the way, the president repeated that. Mm -hmm. Remember that? Yeah. And when he yelled, Americans, everybody jumped up and they were clapping. Because people didn't know how much did the Americans help to save Jews. Because our president those days, unfortunately, was a big anti-Semite. I know most Americans don't know it. But he was a major anti-Semite. He sent a, a ship full of German Jews, doctors, lawyers, whoever could pay. And they were supposed to land in Cuba. But by the time they arrived in Cuba, Hitler called the president and said, we have, you surrounded with U-boats. You allow one Jew in, we're going to destroy Cuba. So they sailed up north to, to Florida, and they asked permission to land, and the president wouldn't let them. They all went back. One third of them ended up in Auschwitz, dead. And they was unfortunate. They kept it, they, even the media, New York Times, who was Jewishly owned, kept it quiet because they were, they were afraid that he's not going to win the next election. But 
That's beside, but I remember when the commandant came to the camp and he went straight to my mother, she was the interpreter, and she gave her the good news that we'll all die soon because your Messiah died today. And I asked my mother, status, you know, a seven-year-old kid, and they said, who was, who was dead? Roosevelt died. So I asked my mother, who's Roosevelt? So she told me, where does he live? She told me, America. A whole bunch of questions. You know, what kids do, you know, usually. And, uh, yeah. So when you were on that train, an American tank came up. What, what did you guys do from there? Well, when my father yelled, you know, yelled Americans, and they, uh, the doors were open, in the beginning, when we got on the train, on every car or other car, you had a German soldier with an anti-aircraft machine gun. Because American Air Force were looking for those trains. If they knew that the train was carrying Germans or ammunition, they would destroy it. In our case, they couldn't tell. They couldn't tell. So we, uh, and then they were replaced, you know, as, so many Germans died in Russia and the Soviet Union. I think they lost almost over almost two million soldiers. So they brought those soldiers and they replaced them with the Hitler Jugend. Hitler Jugend were the favorite of Hitler. They were between 12 and 15. They were more brutal than the soldiers. They wanted to prove themselves. But eventually they disappeared too. So the doors were open. Everybody jumped out, and the fellow who came out of the turret happened to be a Jew, a Jewish soldier, American Jewish soldier. And I talked to the commander who sent him, actually, and he also wanted, he said, I want to be sure that he doesn't have too much uniform on, that you might be very afraid of the uniforms, so forth. He, he just passed away, he was 99 years old, last, last year. Walter, a, um, a, anyhow, it's gonna come to me in a minute. And they, uh, so he had a tank full with candy. He just gave one, because it was very dangerous, you know, for anybody to eat anything. Yeah. In fact, there were 13,000 corpses in Bergen-Belsen. The Americans didn't liberate Bergen-Belsen. It was liberated by the British who were fighting nearby. And they, all of a sudden they see a man in a white coat yelling, medicine, medicine. They're fighting. How do you stop fighting? You know, the war was over, but a lot of German soldiers did not know that the war was over, so they kept fighting. Many of them killed a lot of Jews after the war, actually. So anyhow, they finally decided to to follow him when they arrived. Even before they arrived at Bergen-Belsen, they couldn't believe the stench. The stench was so terrible. It didn't bother us because we lost our sense of smell. The only smell that I remember is burning flesh. That you cannot forget, never. So they got there, they found 13,000 corpses laying on the ground. You couldn't walk without touching somebody. You know, in the camp, my friend and I, we were always foraging for food. 
In the beginning, when we saw a corpse, we would walk around it out of respect. But eventually, we were so hungry and weak, we just stepped on it, and we could hear their bones quacking. So it was not a big deal for us. A, uh, about 13,000, there, there were another 13,000 in Bergen-Belsen who would die within a week or so. There was nothing they could help them. And they, uh, all told, they say that, that 100,000 people died in Bergen-Belsen. That's yeah. incredible. That's crazy. Now, the, the day you were liberated, um, your family moved eventually. Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Tell me about that transition well, from... We were actually, we got back after singing and dancing for an hour, an hour and a half. We got back on the train. First, at the train, they deloused us. You know what delousing is? Put some chemicals, let's read of the lice and whatever else you have. They burned our clothes, and they brought us new clothes. I don't know, new, you know, I don't remember exactly that. But they brought us clothes, and they took us to Hillersleben. Hillersleben was a mid-sized town on the, excuse me, on the Rhine River. At that place, the Rhine was very wide and deep, and there was a very long bridge that was bummed out. And we figured maybe that was the final solution for us, that they're going to push the train right into the Rhine and kill us that way. How, how did you then, your family uh, ended up relocating to Israel? Tell me about that, well, that journey. Well, first of all, in Hitlersleben, my father and my grandfather was about 25 years older than he was. They both con contracted typhoid. Typhoid was the biggest killer in the camps. Then there was a dysentery too, but typhoid was the main killer. The problem is that when you don't eat, you starve, you weaken your immunity system to the point where it cannot fight anything. And typhoid was rampant. You know, one fellow catches it and just spreads. And they... Um, my father passed away, he died, about two days after liberation, which was a tremendous tragedy for us. And they, uh, he was in a German hospital, there was an American military hospital. My mother tried to transfer him, but there was no room or anything, but he would have, di he would have died anyhow. So we lost, I remember my mother coming in, we were all sitting there, the four of us, and she looked at my older brother, Moshe, a, uh, a huge scholar at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and she pointed, now you are the father of this family, and I accepted it. Later on in Israel, I'll tell you, so anyhow, we were only the, the five of us now, and we had my grandparents, the two of them, and we, we had an uncle, my mother's brother, only brother, how my mother managed to convince the Nazis that she needs her brother because she should have gone to labor camp. Very few people survived labor camp. They worked you 14 hours a day on one slice of bread, and eventually within two months, three months, you would drop dead. Because they had labor shortage didn't exist because new prisoners were coming in every single day by the train lot. So they had all the cheap labor, free labor. 
So we, a, uh, what happened to my cousin and his father, I met him eventually in Brooklyn. I didn't meet him. My cousin, Shire, was Isaiah, Shire, was half crazy. I stayed with him one night. I couldn't stay with him any longer because he woke me up every two seconds. You are breathing too high, too loud. I said, can I see your father? He said, you don't want to see him. He's institutionalized. You know, you lose a wife and six children. How do you live with it? You go crazy. What, what was life like in Israel once you moved there? I know you served in the armed forces. You were a teacher there. Yeah. What, what was that like? Well, just to get to Israel, first of all, is, uh, you know, my father he, uh, was beaten up by some workers after work. He came home with a red shirt, left with a white shirt. He pulled himself out of his coats. That's how he survived. Next day, he got us passports to come to America. And we had a little suitcase. That's what they told us, you know, get, take all your valuables and one change of underwear. That's all. That's what they allowed us. So in Paris, my mother entered the store. And in Europe, you could not take a suitcase into a store. So when she finished doing whatever she was doing, the suitcase was gone. All the passports were gone, anyhow. But my mother, you know, uh, they sent emissaries from Hungary and the Soviet Union looking for any people who owned factories to come back. And my mother asked them, who's going to own it? And they said, the people, we are communists. You know? So my mother said to him, goodbye. <laughs> and they, uh, we were in Marseille, that's southern France, on the Mediterranean. And we got on that uh, on the ship. It was one of the legal ships, because the British did not allow everybody to come, only so many. They sided with the Arabs because of oil. But we got to Israel. And as soon as we got to Israel, we got off the ship, my grandfather fell on the ground, kissed the ground, and made the blessing, and we joined him. And this is one of the, it played on the strings of our yeah. heart. Yeah. I can never forget it. You see, to Christians, Israel is the holy land, right? Because Jesus lived there. But for us, the earth, the dirt is holy. If you do three steps, you did a good deed. In other words, if you walk all day long, <laughs> you're going to be filled with good deeds. That's wonderful. Now, yeah. how, when you came to America then, where did you come first? Well, actually, first I came to Canada. Okay. My, my, my uncle that my mother saved, a, uh, she saved him by telling, convincing the Germans that she has four kids, one sick husband, and she can't take care of her parents. She needs my brother. And somehow, and there was a couple of times she actually managed to convince. Okay, the first one was, in the, before we got to Bergen-Belsen, we were in Austria. And we were, they took the train, divided among the manufacturers, and we landed in a big, a, a, a wood place, you know, preparing wood for buildings and so forth. There were some French prisoners of war there, but the owner, an Austrian, 
an Austrian Nazi major, whenever he went by the Jews, by us, he would open his shirt and he had a big swastika tattooed on his chest, just to tease us. By the way, you know, Austria and Germany are Germanic people, Aryans, both. So they became just like that. That's what the Anschluss, the close-up, means. And they, uh, so we were there for a while. Every day after 12 hours work, my mother would sneak out to a nearby village and she would negotiate with the ladies, say, get a needle and get yarn and I'll make clothes for your babies. And she did it. And the clothes she made were the kind you find only at Saks Fifth Avenue. I mean, they've never seen anything like that. So they were glad to give her, but they had to be careful because there was direct order, any German or Austrian dealing with a Jew is gonna shut, he's gonna be shut. So uh, for that, she was getting a little milk, a little bread, some cheese, some eggs, not too much. But I think that also helped us. Yeah. And just to show you the atrocities of the Germans, in jail she shared a room with an Austrian beauty. She was maybe 20, 18, 19, 20 or something like that. My mother spoke fluent German, so she asked her, what are you doing here? And she said, Hitler gave a direct order to all the beauties, only beauties, between 18 and 25, to entertain the German soldiers coming home on furlough. Sure enough, she died, the hunter. We never wanted to ask her, how did you survive? But she told us that there was a squad of German soldiers came in with a lieutenant who was Hollywood handsome. My mother was very much into fashion because that's what we did, that's what we did. We fashioned clothes for usually the high-end people in our city. So we, we never wanted to ask her. I just surmise that my mother would do anything in the world to save her life. So he sent her back. She convinced him that she has four children, sick husband, parents, and a brother. They'll all die if she's not there. And we were worried about two, three days when she didn't come home. Fast forward to last year, huh? October 27th of last year. Yeah. You were, you were going to your synagogue, Tree right. of Life. Tell me about what was taking place that day, what, ha what happened. Well, usually I get to the synagogue before 9.45 when the services start because the rabbi is there and there are about another nine, ten people beside me. Sometimes you don't have ten. Usually most people come quarter past ten, half past ten. And they, uh, I was ready to go, and my housekeeper showed up. Usually she doesn't get there till 10 o'clock. She had to tell me something. I said, Patty, I'm late already. I got to go. So I went there. I was four minutes late. That's all that you saw in the media, the four-minute men, you know. And I got there. It was very quiet. I moved my car into the handicap lane. I was the last spot. I was, there was a walkway between my car and the entry into the social hall of the synagogue. From there you went to the chapel. The big synagogue used only on high holy days or weddings 
No, when you need more than 300 or 400 people. So all of a sudden, this young fellow, I would say maybe 40 years old, a, uh, he had a black wind, windbreaker, white shirt and jeans, black jeans, and he knocked on my passenger window. I turned around and he went like that. Rolled the window down. So I rolled. He says to me, you better go back. There is a shootout inside your synagogue. There was nobody there. The police were not there yet. The firemen were not there yet. And they, uh, then he left. And as he left, I noticed that there was a person with a blue windbreaker with a pistol was standing behind the wall about two and a half, three feet from me. And he was shooting, pulling his head out, push, you know, putting his head out, shooting. One, two, three. And Bauer, the shooter, was answering with a little submachine gun of some kind. I counted, you know, I was a soldier. And he shot back 15 bullets. And they, that went on for about maybe two minutes or so. Being a soldier, the instinct, you know, kind of came out that when you hear shooting, don't start shooting, find out where it's coming from. So I pushed my head towards, into the passenger side, and I was facing him, face to face, eye to eye. He was about, he was standing behind the second car in front of me, or maybe the third. I think it was actually between the second and third. I could see him only from here up. The rest, he was hidden. And I looked at him, and he was so focused on the detective. He saw me, but he figured that I do not constitute the danger. But the policeman, the detective was, and then he disappeared. He went back to the synagogue. They say he wanted to finish some more. I don't know. I think actually they found him hiding. So I think we actually found a place to hide. Judy, you've been through so much in your life. You've experienced pain at a level that none of us have ever experienced. And you're here. I mean, 82 years, remarkable. What, what is something that you want to make sure the next generation knows? You mentioned the next generation. We're talking children. Children, teenagers, generation following Mostly you. Mostly children. In the Bible it says, teach thy children. You know, when you're 20, 30, you start teaching them about anti-Semitism, it's not going to do any good. You know, there's some, something more important. Watch a football game or listen to some crazy music, you know. That's what we are today. Music and, and sports. And you mentioned some entertainment, I think you said, yeah. Well, that's the main entertainment, the two things that I just mentioned. You have to start from very early on. In Hungary, we didn't suffer. I didn't suffer. First, I was too young. Secondly, we had a ghetto like, not that they imposed on us, Jews. There were two types of Jews. You had the Reformed Jews, and you had the Orthodox, the Hasidic Jews, the really 
Orthodox, we like to live as close to the synagogue as possible because we don't drive on Sabbath or on the holidays. Well, I became a conservative Jew, and I, I live quite far, so I drive. Conservative and reformed Jews drive cars. What, what is it you want people someday to say about your life? I cannot say. I could say that they, uh, I had a rough time in Israel at first. I was five years in an orphanage. My mother couldn't handle us. It was one of the reasons. She should have taken my sister because she was separated. You don't have boys and girls together. At least with the three of us, we were together. But I was so full with rage that I became kind of the head of the people there, of the kids. There were about 125. I, uh, some of them were survivors of, of a death camp, but most of them were actually hidden children. I don't know if you ever heard about the hidden children. The hidden children uh, in Poland, when they came to Poland, all the Jews, and there were about 3.1 million Jews, they sold everything they had, and they took their kids to the countryside. They went to a farmer. They went to a small businessman. Here's all my money. Take care of my children. When I come back, I'll take them. 2.9 million Jews, almost 3 million Jews, never came back. They were all killed. Now you have all these children. They are brought up Catholic. That's all they know. They speak nothing but Polish. And they, uh, so what to do with them? So they went to the priest. The priest didn't know what to do. So they went to the bishop. The bishop didn't know what to do. So they went to the cardinal, Wojtyla. And he said, send them to Israel. They're Catholic. They speak Polish. If by the age of 18 they want to come back, it's going to be up to them. Wojtyla was the Polish pope. He became the Polish pope. He was just declared in Israel only in the last year as a righteous of the Gentiles. There were quite a few. I think in Israel, the other was him, you have 10,000 trees for them. They're still looking for them, but they are dying out. I'm almost the last of the Mohegans, at least in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yeah. Judo, you, your life is such an incredible example of resilience, and I can speak for everyone here today that we are so honored to have you with us and to get to hear your story. And um, I hope, and I know for me, this is a moment that I will never forget, to get to hear the amazing story of, of you, what you did in your life. Your mother did my to survive was. and to, to protect her children. And we're just so very, very grateful. And I just appreciate uh, you joining us here today. And I enjoy your services. Thank you so much. Very, very much. Thank you. Can you get up for Judah today? Thank you, Judah. Thanks for being with us. Can you get up for Judah this, this morning? Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Judah. Thank you. You can be seated. Before we, we close this morning, uh, first of all, thank you for being with us. And 
you know, what we talked about earlier, there's something important. Uh, and being a human being, not being superhuman, not, not, not thinking we can do it all, but recognizing that we have limits. And uh, getting to hear Judah's story, and the human body is remarkable. The resilience that is possible. It's, it's remarkable when you hear these stories of survival. But it's important for us to recognize our own limits. To not push past those limits, but to recognize those limits. Because really when we recognize the end of ourselves, when we identify the end of ourselves, we start to see the beginning of God. And today, I, I don't know what brought you into this place. You know, maybe it was to hear Judah. Maybe your first responder. I, I, I don't know what brought you here. But I do know this, that you're a human being, like I'm a human being. And there are moments that you see the end of yourself. There are moments where you find your limit and you hit that limit. And in those moments, we respond in so many different ways. Some people, they, they try to, to, to find something that can make the pain go away. And maybe they, they, they drink or, or a substance and, and they try to make the pain go away. Others, others, they try to ignore the limit and push past it and find themselves in disaster. And I don't know where you are today or what, what brought you here, but I want to give you an opportunity to say, you know what? I, I've recognized my limit. I want to start to see the beginning of God in my life. This isn't about a church. This isn't about a religious thing. This isn't about, you know, becoming part of a church or any of that. Just between you and God saying, God, I, I want to start to see the beginning of you in my life. Because the reality is before you ever see God, he's seeing you. He formed you and he shaped you and he loves you and he cares about you so very much that he sent his son Jesus 2,000 years ago to, to give his life upon a cross. Not, not to start a religion, but to pay the price for our mistakes that the Bible calls our sin. And today he's saying, in spite of all that is in your past and the mistakes you have made, all that fills your life, the fear that maybe you experience, God loves you just as you are just the way you are, the way you sit there. He loves you so very much. And he loves you enough to say, I forgive you. And not only that, I have so much more in store for you. I have a plan, I have a purpose for your life. And I just want to take a moment and, and wrap, up, wrap up this day, a special day in prayer. If you could bow your heads with me. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the story and the conversation that they have with Judah and to honor, Lord, our heroes of this community. God, I pray for those that are here that maybe have reached the end of themselves. God, help them to begin to see the beginning of you at work in their life. As you're continuing to pray this morning, if you're here and you say, Nick, I've never, I've never asked, taken that step to say, Jesus, I want you to be in my life. I want to experience your forgiveness. I, I want to step into your purpose. The reason you put me on this earth, I want to step into that. If you've never taken that step, in a minute, I'm going to count to three. I'm just going to ask you to reach your hand toward heaven. And, and I want you to understand something. In reaching your hand toward heaven, you're not joining a church. You're not becoming a Bible thumper. You're saying, I want to be right with my creator. I want to recognize that I'm not perfect, but God took my pain, my sorrow, my mistakes upon his shoulders when Jesus went to that cross. And he has a plan for my life, and I want to step into that. If that's you this morning, you say, I want to commit my life. I want to follow Jesus this morning. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to reach your hand toward heaven. One, two, three. Would you reach your hand toward heaven this morning? 
Amen. Anyone else today? Amen. You can put your hands down. I'm going to ask everyone to pray this prayer with me. Whether you raised your hand or not, it's just a prayer. It's, it's a conversation with God. That's all prayer is. And I want to lead you in this conversation. My hope for all of us, if you're not used to praying to God, is this might be the first of many conversations you have with God. Would you all pray this prayer with me together? Dear God, thank you for loving me just as I am. Today I accept your forgiveness and I commit to live for your purposes. Give me the strength and the courage to follow you all the days of my life and to show your love to the world around me. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you. One, congratulations, way to go. Man, what an incredible journey you've begun. Two, I want to encourage you to stop by our Connection Center. There we have a little booklet we want to put in your hands to help you continue that journey. For all of us today, thank you so much for joining us. It's such an honor. And we are so blessed to be part of this amazing community. And whether you're a first responder or not, thank you for being here to, to celebrate with us, to honor, to, to hear this amazing story. Before we go, we're going to pray. If you want to stand with me. Lord, I thank you for the blessings you've given us. Lord, I thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, in our community. God, help us be responsible with the blessings you've given us, that we could be a blessing to others. God, whether it be in our workplace, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, God, let us reflect your love and your grace to those we encounter today, throughout this week. God, that we could see the resilience of one man today, that we could practice that in our own lives, even when things get difficult, that we could press on. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your goodness. Lord, we pray that you would go with us with strength, go with us with your grace, go with us with your peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Have a wonderful day. This is Pastor Nick Poole, the lead pastor at Calvary. We're so glad you joined us for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed the message. At Calvary Church, we're passionate about leading people into an overflowing life with Jesus. We would love the opportunity to connect with you on your faith journey and hear what God is doing in your life or join you in prayer for any needs you might have. You can visit us online at calvaryirwin.com or send us an email at info at calvaryirwin.com. On our website, you'll find previous week's messages, a list of upcoming events, as well as resources designed to help you take those next steps on your journey of faith. See you next week, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. 